6. The streets are thoroughly flooded at night. If the streets are kept damp and clean, then the air above them is cool and fresh and pure. How does the city get rid of all the dirt and waste? From every house there are two kinds of waste. Some is taken away in pipes from the sink and bathroom out into pipes that run under the street. And these carry it away from the city to some stream or deep water that takes it entirely away from the town. The waste stuffs that are not watery, but solid cabbage leaves, apple cores, potato parings, and other scraps from the kitchen are carted away and burned or fed to pigs. The ashes and tin cans are carted away, also, and used in making new land or filling up hollow places, besides taking away the dirt. Cities are careful to get clear, pure drinking water. They are very, very careful about this, and they usually have the water tested often, because, as you have learned, even water that looks perfectly pure may give people typhoid fever. That is why, when you are out in the country, on a picnic perhaps, you must not drink from the streams. They may receive the drainage from a farmer's barnyard, or the sewage from some house. The more we all learn about these things, the more careful will the city be to protect her people. To be sure, most cities now have boards of health for employment and women to go about and see that the food in the stores is clean no flies, no dust, and no tobacco smoke on it. They have laws, too about keeping milk clean, and in New York alone these laws have saved the lives of thousands of babies, and they have laws about the care of streets and buildings and cars and parks and a great many other things, in all these things we have been talking about, I want you to be thinking how you can help, for a city is made up of people boys and girls and men and women, the city is what its people make it, and everyone must help, even the smallest children, no older than little Claude. The first and most important thing for you to do is to keep yourself clean and tidy. And the next thing is for you to keep your backyard as well as your front yard and the schoolyard and the street free from papers and sticks and cans and old playthings. You can put away your things when you are through playing, or, if you are making a railroad or a town or a playhouse, you can leave it looking nice and tidy. You can help chiefly by putting away your own things. You know the old saying. A workman is known by his chips, and a good workman always works in an orderly way. When you eat apples or bananas or oranges, don't throw the skins or peelings about, but put them in a garbage can or swill bucket or cover them with soft dirt in the garden or stable yard, and don't throw peanut shells, or scraps of paper and the like, about the streets or parks. You should begin to notice all these things and talk about them, and that will make other people begin to think about them, too. Then you can make gardens instead of leaving bare, and tidy backyards. I think that nicely kept vegetable gardens are almost as pretty as flower gardens. If you cannot mow the lawn, you can at least cut the long grass on the edges, and that makes such a difference. It is wonderful how much boys and girls can do in making and keeping a city really beautiful. I hope that you have plenty of room to play in now. Of course, when you grow up, you will see that there are plenty of playgrounds and parks for the children. We are beginning to find out that the richest and the most beautiful city is the one whose streets are lined with families of happy, rosy-cheeked children. So, you see, the city beautiful is the one that takes best care of her children, and she can do this only by keeping her streets and houses perfectly clean and seeing that the food her people get is fresh and good, and their drinking water pure. If the city or town you live in is not like this, be sure you do your very best to make it better. There is one great evil that for hundreds and hundreds of years has been known wherever people are crowded together, and even in the open country, too, 
and which has been the cause of more untidiness and uncleanliness and unhappiness and disease than any other evil ever known, and that is the drinking of alcohol. People don't drink clear alcohol, but they can get a great deal of it enough to poison them badly in the fermented drinks you learned about some time ago. In the days when your grandfather was a little boy, every man thought that ale and wine and whiskey were good foods for him when he was well, and good medicine when he was sick. He believed that they gave him an appetite, and increased his strength. But now we have found, by carefully studying the effects of alcohol, in laboratories and in hospitals, that these beliefs were almost entirely mistaken. We know that all that wine, beer, and whiskey do is to make people feel better for a little while, without making them actually stronger or better in any way. In fact, in most respects these drinks make them weaker and worse instead. Perhaps you will ask. How do whiskey and wine and beer do us harm? And here is only part of the answer, one they tire the heart and, by enlarging the blood pipes in the skin, make the heart pump too much of the blood out to the skin. In this way they make a person feel warmer when he really is not any warmer. Two they make the liver work too hard. Three they dull the brain, so that it cannot think so clearly or so well. For if one drinks them frequently, it is harder for him to get well when he is sick. More people die out of those who drink alcohol than out of those who do not. Alcohol is a narcotic, that island it deadens our nerves, for the time being, to any sensations of pain or discomfort, much in the same way that a very small dose of morphine or opium would. We may imagine it does us good because, for a little while after drinking it, we may cease to feel pain or fatigue or cold, but, instead of making us really better and able to do more work, it is dulling our nerves so that we work more slowly and more clumsily. Men who have carefully measured the amount of work that they do have found that they do less work on days when they take one or two glasses of beer or wine than they do on days when they drink only water. The great insurance companies have found that those of their policy holders who drink no alcohol at all live nearly one-fourth longer and have nearly one-third fewer sicknesses than those who drink alcohol even in moderate amounts. Indeed. So strong is the evidence as to the bad effects of alcohol, and so steadily is it increasing, that it will probably not be very many years more before the drinking of wine or beer by intelligent, thoughtful people will have become less than half as common as it is now. Strong, healthy men may be able for a long time to drink small amounts of liquor without noticing any harmful effects, but all the time the alcohol may be doing serious harm to their nerves and brain and kidneys and liver and blood vessels which they will not find out until it is too late to stop the trouble. Useless and bad as alcohol is for full-grown men and women, it is even worse for young and growing children, and no child, and no boy or girl under the age of 21, should ever touch a drop of it, except in those rare instances where it may be prescribed as a medicine by a doctor, just as many other drugs are, which in larger doses would be poisons. Fortunately, it will be no trouble for you children to let it alone entirely, for not one of you would like the taste of it the first time or, indeed, for the matter of that, for the first ten or twelve times that you tried to drink it, if you should be so foolish. This is one striking difference between alcohol and all other foods and drinks. Children have absolutely no natural liking, or taste, for the drinks that contain it, as they have for meat, milk, sugar, apples, and the other real foods. This is nature's way of telling them that it is not a real food and not needed in any way for their growth and health. Let it alone absolutely, until you are at least 21 years old, and by that time you will probably have become so convinced of the harm that it is doing that you will never begin using it at all. 
What we have been saying so far applies, of course, only to the moderate use of alcohol. How terrible the effects of the long or excessive use of alcohol are, you don't need to learn from a book. All you have to do is to keep your eyes open on the streets, and see the drunken men reeling along the sidewalk, and the wrecks of men that hang around the saloons. The poor houses and the jails and the insane asylums are filled with them. The most terrible thing that can happen to anyone is to become a drunkard. The best and safest and only sensible thing to do is to keep away from the only stuff that makes drunkards. It may do you the most terrible harm, and it cannot do you the slightest good. Your city can never become the city beautiful, so long as this evil mars it, and, as you grow up, I hope you will do all you can toward making the right kind of city and home. The evening meal when you have had some good games of play after school, and have finished whatever errands you may have to run, or have done the chores about the barn or the garden or the house, you will begin to feel as if there were something missing somewhere. It won't take you very long to discover where that missing feeling is, and when you hear a call from the house, or a ring of the bell in the hall, you come running in for supper. If you have worked well in school and played hard and done your chores well, you will have a splendid appetite. In fact, you will think there is no other meal in the day that tastes quite so good. Is your evening meal supper or dinner? If you have had a hot dinner at noon, you probably do not want anything more than a good supper. But if you had only luncheon, then you are ready to eat something hot and hearty about 6 o'clock. What are some of the things that you like for dinner? Meat and eggs and bread and butter and jam and rice and potatoes and onions and celery and cookies and apples and oranges and oh, so many, many other things. Mother Nature has given us all these good things, that we may have not only enough to eat but plenty of different kinds. We soon grow tired of one kind, and that is how she tells us that we need many kinds. When I was little, Oranges were not so common as they are now, and I never but once had as many as I wanted. That once, my father told me to eat all I liked, and I did, but for weeks afterwards I didn't want even to see an orange. Did you ever feel that way too? Though perhaps not about oranges, nature sometimes has to teach us not to eat too much of one kind at a time. Some people like one thing, and some another. Do all of you like onions? I think not, but those who do like them very much. The same thing is true of tomatoes and sweet potatoes and red raspberries and oysters and many other things, but there are some things that almost everybody likes, and our grandfathers and great-grandfathers and great-great-grandfathers ate them. One of them is called the staff of life, because we lean, or depend, on it so much, we have it for breakfast, dinner, and supper, that is bread, of course, meat and eggs and milk and butter, too are among the foods that we all like. These might be called our main foods, and we should eat one or two or even three of them at each meal. Meat and milk and eggs and butter, animals give us. But these are not enough, we need besides some of the foods that plants give us. Because, as I have told you, we need different kinds of food at one time to keep the body fires going briskly. What are some of the foods that plants give us? Bread is made from a plant from wheat. Oatmeal comes from the oat plant and hominy, from corn, some of our plant foods, such as potatoes, turnips, onions, sweet potatoes, parsnips, and radishes, grow underground, some, such as peas and beans, grow on vines, then there are lettuce and cabbage and celery, and there are fruits cherries, apples, peaches, plums, pears, melons, tomatoes, berries, nature has given us all these foods, and many more, and she wants us to use them all. 
she wants us to use, every day and every meal, some foods that come from plants and some that come from animals. A good dinner would be a slice of roast beef or mutton, a potato, a helping of some sort of vegetable like peas or beans or onions or tomatoes or celery, and a dish of milk pudding or apple dumpling, or stewed fruit with bread and butter, or pie that has only an upper crust or its under crust very well baked. When you are eating bread, remember that the crusts are the very best part, because they are well cooked and really taste the best. They are good for your teeth, too, perhaps. While I am talking about a good meal, I ought to talk a little about the way to eat and how to make mealtime pleasant. Of course, to make our food soft, we must take little bites, eat slowly, and chew each mouthful a long time. Be sure to remember this. So many of the children I know eat so fast that you'd think they had to catch a train. Did you ever see anyone try to talk and chew at the same time or forget to shut his mouth while he was chewing? Wasn't it a very awkward, disagreeable sight? Think a moment, if you are tempted to talk with your mouth full, or put your knife into your mouth, or make a noise while you are eating, that these things are not pleasant for your neighbors. Do you tell funny stories at the table and talk about happy tramps you have taken or games you have played, or about your pets or your books? If you do, your food will do you more good, and you will be helping the other people at the table, too. Meal times should be the happiest times in the day. A pleasant evening when the supper things have been cleared away. You have two hours or so before going to bed. And I dare say you look forward to these as one of the pleasantest parts of the day. It is always best for you to take things rather easily and quietly and pleasantly for at least 15 or 20 minutes after every meal. And after the heaviest meal of the day. Whether this comes at noon or in the evening. It is better to stretch the time to half or three quarters of an hour. If you try to work or play hard right after a hearty meal, you will be drawing away to your brain or to your muscles, the blood that the stomach is trying to get for the digesting and melting of your food. I suppose that you have all found this out for yourselves, for, if you run and play too hard right after dinner, you are very soon out of breath, and if you keep up the exercise, you are quite likely to have an attack of indigestion or stomach ache. If you sit down to study directly after a meal, you soon feel heavy and lazy, and what you read doesn't seem clear to you, and in a little while you probably had a headache and an unpleasant taste in your mouth. If you try to do two important things like digestion and hard work with your brain or the muscles of your arms and legs at the same time, you will be very likely to do both of them badly. Even if you have studying to do at night, it will be much better for you to spend half an hour or an hour in laughing and chatting, or in reading some good story or in playing some of the many pleasant parlor games that rest you instead of tiring you, before you settle down to your books, you will find that when you do start to work, you get your lessons much more quickly and easily than if you had started in after eating, perhaps your sister is just waiting to show you that girls can play checkers better than boys can, so there, or some of your friends have come in for a game of dominoes or authors or snap or parcheesi or stagecoach or pussy wants a corner, or to try that new song you learned last week, and you will be surprised how quickly the time flies away and bedtime or study hour comes. Most evenings, however, you will probably get out your favorite magazine, or that good story that you are reading, and you will all sit around the big lamp on the center table and go off on adventures to the uttermost parts of the earth, with the best and most lasting friends that you will ever make friends who will never grow tired of you and will always come when you want them and are always willing to talk or play the people that live in books.
Be sure to pick out the best of them for your chums the bravest and the kindest and the most courteous, and the cleanest and the most honorable. You have the whole world to choose from, and it is never worth your while to get acquainted with cheap, badly behaved, second-rate people when you can have your pick of the best. Your mother and your father and your teacher will help you to choose, and you will soon find that what they call good literature is good stories, and about the right sort of men and women and boys and girls the kind that you would like to know, and that you would want to be like. Once try it, and you find that you like that kind of reading better than you do the cheap, slangy, trashy stuff, just as you like, and never get tired of good bread and butter and roast beef and apples and milk and cream and pudding and pie. Good sound stories of home life and adventure and travel are just as important in making your minds wholesome and happy as these good foods are in keeping your body strong and healthy. Be sure that the paper of the books and magazines you read is white and not glossy, and is fairly thick and firm, for this makes them much easier to read and strains your eyes less. See, too, that the type is large and clear, for small, closed type and yellow or shiny paper are very hard on the eyes. Be sure, of course. When you sit down to a read not to sit with your face to the lamp and your head bending forward, but settle yourself in a comfortable chair with your back to the light, and hold your book so that you can keep your chin up and your head erect while you read. You can breathe better, and read better, and enjoy what you read better in this position than in any other. Even if you have sums or writing to do, it is better to sit with your back, or at least your left side, toward the light and often you will find it a great help to sit down with your back to the light in a large easy chair and do your writing on a big, thin book, or light piece of board, on a cushion on your knee. In winter, you will find that for the first half hour or so that you are reading after supper, you will want to keep fairly near the fire, because the blood is being drawn in from your skin to your stomach for purposes of digestion, but be sure to see that at least one, and better two. Windows in the room are open six inches or so at the top, so that there is plenty of fresh air pouring into the room. When study hour comes, take up your books and go briskly to work, forgetting that there is anything else in the world, and you will be astonished how quickly you will learn your lessons. Besides, you will be learning one of the most valuable lessons in life to do with your might whatever your hands, or minds, find to do. Good night by getting ready for bed by and by the clock strikes eight or nine, and your mother says, Children, time to go to bed. Sometimes you will have just come to the interesting point in the story, and would give anything to go on and finish it, but often you will be just nodding over your book, or beginning to wonder why the story is not quite so interesting as it was, or why the lines seem to be running into one another, and the book inclined to swing up and bump your nose, if you have had a lively, busy, happy day. You are quite sleepy enough to be ready for bed that island if you could drop into it with all your clothes on, without all the bother and fess of undressing. So you pull yourself together bravely and answer, all right, mother, and say good night to everybody. And upstairs you go. Of course, you must take off your clothes, because you would find them most uncomfortable to sleep in besides. The little pores all over your skin have been pouring out perspiration all day long, and a great deal of this has been caught by your clothes, just as it is caught by the bedclothes while you sleep. So it is a good thing to take off your clothes, and let your skin be well aired and cooled. Don't leave your clothes all in a heap on the floor just where you happen to shed them, but hang them up over the back of a chair or on pegs, so that the air can blow through them all night long and sweeten and clean and dry them. 
clothes that are worn continuously become sour with perspiration, and for the same reason your mother gives you regularly, once or twice a week, clean underwear and clean shirts or dresses, after you have undressed for bed, wash your face and neck and hands, and if you have a nice warm room or bathroom, take a quick splash, or sponge bath, all over, before you put on your nightgown. This will wash away from your skin everything that the perspiration has been leaving on it all day long, as well as any dust, or dirt, that may have got on it during the day. If the room is not warm enough for you to do this, it is a good thing for you to strip to your waist and then to swing your arms about, much as you did in the morning, only not quite so long, and to rub your arms and neck and shoulders all over with your hands, this gives them an air bath and rubs off any of the little scales of skin that may be ready to be shed, and gives you a sort of dry wash, which is next best to a wet one. Then, when you have put on your nightdress, give your hair a thorough brushing. This is the best time of the day to do it. Dust, smoke, soot, and germs have been blowing into your hair all day long, and a thoroughly good brushing will not only get these out of it before they have had time to work their way in and lodge on the scalp, but will keep the hair bright and healthy. Before you get into bed, give your nails a quick scrub with a nail brush and hot water and soap, and go over them with a blunt blunt nail cleaner, cleaning out any dirt that may be under their edges, and rounding off any ragged or broken points with the file, once a week or so, when you take your hot bath, it is a good thing to go over your toenails in the same way, trimming them and cleaning them, remember, however, not to round off your toenails at the corners, but to leave them square as in this way you will prevent them from ingrowing under the pressure of your shoes. There is one thing that you should be very sure of before you get into bed, and that is that your teeth are as clean as it is possible for you to make them. If you attended to this also directly after supper, so much the better, for just as it is important to clean the dishes and knives and forks that you have been using, so it is important to thoroughly clean the ivory knives and forks that grow in your mouth. Talk about being born with a silver spoon in your mouth. You were born with something much prettier and far more valuable. Even though your teeth make a firm and even line in front and on their cutting edges, yet there are many little gaps and spaces between their roots, where bits of food can stick. If these scraps of food are not thoroughly and carefully removed after each meal, the warmth and moisture in the mouth makes them begin to decay. The acids from this decay will be likely not only to upset your stomach and digestion, but to act upon the glassy coating of your teeth. After a little while, spots will begin to form on the surface of your teeth, they will lose their bright, shiny, pearly look, the acids will eat further into the teeth, and very soon there will be holes, or cavities, though your teeth are very hard and glassy looking on the surface, they are much softer and chalkier inside, this glassy coating covers only the crown, or free part, of the tooth, which you can see, it leaves the softer inside part of the tooth bare just at the edge of the gums and particularly between the roots of the teeth, where little scraps of food lodge and decay. When the acids that are formed by the decaying food have eaten away a good deal of the inside of the tooth, the hard, shiny surface is left just like a thin shell, and one day you happen to bite down upon a piece of bone in your food, or try to crack a nut with your teeth, and, crack, goes this brittle shell of your hollow tooth. Illustration, healthy gums mean healthy teeth if the gums are not kept clean and healthy. The second teeth that are getting ready to push out the first teeth will not come in strong and good, nor will the teeth remain good. This picture shows how the teeth grow. Notice the gaps between the teeth, where food may lodge, 
right in the middle of each tooth is a tiny hollow, or cavity, filled with a soft, living pulp containing one or two very sensitive nerves, and when the decay has eaten into the tooth far enough to reach this nerve pulp, it makes it ache, and then you have toothache. The one and only thing that is necessary in order to avoid all this decay and breaking away of your teeth, and throbbing toothache, is to keep the surface of your teeth, and particularly the sides where they are next one another, clean and smooth and unbroken, and all that is needed to keep your teeth perfectly clean and smooth is to use your toothbrush thoroughly after every meal and at bedtime, and then, if there are any little scraps of food between the teeth that have not been brushed away, to pick them out gently with a quill toothpick or take a piece of silk or linen thread, push it up between the teeth, and gently saw backward and forward until you have cleaned out the space between the roots. You should take at least three to five minutes after every meal and before you go to bed at night to brush your teeth, and you should brush not only your teeth, but the whole surface of your gums close up to where they join the lips. It is almost as important to keep your gums pink and hard and healthy as it is to keep your teeth clean, and the same thorough brushing will do both. If the gums are perfectly healthy, they will come well down over the roots of the teeth, and keep them safely covered right down to where the glassy outer coating begins, and so leave no gap where the acids of decay can attack the teeth. Be sure to brush your teeth, not merely straight backward and forward, but up and down and round and round as well, both to clean out thoroughly all the grooves and openings between them and to brush the gums well down over the teeth. It may seem strange. But one of the best ways to keep your teeth from growing crooked and irregular is to keep your nose clear and healthy, so that you can breathe through it freely at all times, both day and night. Crooked jaws and irregular teeth are more often caused by mouth breathing than by any other one thing. You can see why it is best to be careful not to get grit or dirt or bits of bone in your food, and not to crack nuts or hard candy with your teeth. If you do, you may crack or scratch the delicate glassy coating of your teeth. On the other hand, it is a good thing to give the teeth plenty to do, and particularly to eat the crusts of bread, and some of the tougher parts of meat, and parched corn or other grains, and to eat celery, apples, and other foods that take a great deal of chewing. The teeth are like everything else in the body they need plenty of vigorous work in order to keep them healthy. Be very careful, though, to keep out of your mouth anything that might possibly crack or scratch the glassy coating, such as pins, pennies pieces of wire, or slate pencils, it is best not even to try to bite off threads or pieces of string, their island of course, another reason for not putting pencils and pennies and such things into your mouth, they may have dirt, or germs, on them and infect you with disease or at least upset your digestion, aye aye, the land of not now you are all ready for bed, and the white pillow and the nice, clean sheets and the warm blankets look very good to you, and you are ready to go to the land of not, You need not be afraid of the cold at night. Open your bedroom windows. Have plenty of lightweight, warm covers, then the cold breezes won't hurt you, but will make you strong. Just think how many hours you are in bed, nearly half of your life, and you need fresh, moving air all the time. Be sure to open your windows from the top as well as from the bottom. You know why? Your breath is warm so that it floats and rises like smoke, and if you open the window only at the bottom, this bad air which rises to the top of the room, can't get out. It is best to have windows on two sides of a bedroom, so that the air can be kept moving through it all night long. If you don't breathe fresh air while you sleep, you will feel dull and stupid in the morning and perhaps have a headache. So run your window shades right up to the top and throw your curtains, 
or shutters, back, as well as open the windows. If you don't, the fresh air cannot blow through the room properly. Even if this does let more light or noise into the room, this is of no importance whatever compared with abundance of fresh air. If you have played long enough out of doors in the daytime and have eaten a good supper and not stayed up too late, you will sleep soundly without being bothered at all by either lights or noises coming in through the windows. And no matter how cold or how light it island don't put your head under the bedclothes. Why, it is best for you to close your mouth while you are going to sleep, and breathe through your nose, so that the air will be properly purified and warmed before it reaches your lungs. If you can't do this, your mother can perhaps give you something to wash out your nose, so that you can breathe freely. If that does not help, you had better see a doctor, and he will find some way to clear your head so that you can use your nose comfortably. Suppose you take a pencil and paper and write down all you did yesterday. Wasn't it enough to make you tired and sleepy and want a chance to rest? Even while you sleep, your heart keeps beating, and you don't stop breathing, of course, but your muscles are quiet, and your food tube rests, your brain rests, too, better in sleep than at any other time, so that when morning comes you are as lively as a cricket and quite ready for the new day. Yet even in sleep your brain does not stop working entirely, but goes on receiving messages from the stomach and the skin and the memory, and mixing them up together in the strangest fashion, so that you dream, as you say, you ought not to dream very much if you are perfectly well, but as long as your dreams are pleasant or amusing, you need not pay any attention to them, but if you have had bad dreams, or you dream so hard all night long that you don't feel rested in the morning, then you had better speak to your mother about it, and let her see what is the 